Mark's epilogue, Mark chapter 16. A book that takes a little less than two hours to read has taken us almost 45 sermons to study. (laughs) And actually, it might even be a little more. And we could have gone longer. We did not exist. The wonderful truth found in this amazing portion of God's holy word. But I hope you've enjoyed the study. It's been life-changing for me as we have sought to simply see Jesus Christ in all of his glory. There are two amazing confessions made in the Gospel of Mark. One is by Peter, who when Jesus says to him in chapter 8, Who do men say that I am? He declares, You are the Christ. In Matthew, the phrase is added, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You are Messiah, you are God. The last confession is made in chapter 15 by a Roman soldier. So you've got a a Jewish rabbi or a Jewish disciple and a Roman soldier who at the cross, after hearing his cry and seeing how Christ died, declared, surely this man was the Son of God. And that's the best he could do with all he had in declaring the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we have these wonderful confessions in the Gospel of Mark. But the epilogue is interesting. Uh, Epilogue comes from two Greek words. Epi actually means on top, and logos is the Greek word for word or to speak. And so on top is the idea of... uh, adding on to, in addition to. So the epilogue is the final word in addition to what has been said. It is the final literary piece to bring closure to what has gone before. And Mark has an amazing epilogue. I like what Orson Welles says, if you want a happy ending in a story, it depends, of course, on where you stop your story. And the gospel according to Mark, although it is not without some controversy as far as where the original manuscripts actually stop the story, what we're given in our Bibles is a fascinating summary and end to this amazing life of Christ. But not the end. It is only a fitting stop uh, to his life story here on planet Earth. And what I find so amazing in Matthew chapter 16 is that we go from skepticism to evangelism, right? When they hear about the empty tomb, they don't believe. But by the end of the chapter, they're going everywhere telling everyone about this amazing story. And so my question is, what made the difference? What transformed their thinking? What inspired their lives? What was the process? What was the catalyst? What made them go from unbelievers to passionate proclaimers of the empty tomb in the gospel of Jesus Christ? Well, that's what chapter 16 is really all about. Back in 1987, there was a British series of children's books created by Martin Hanford, and the subject was called Where's Wally? Published in America, it is Where's Waldo? Some of you have seen this, haven't you? 
And so you've got the challenge to find this character, Wally or Waldo, who's dressed in his distinctive dress, a red and white tripe of sweater and a ski hat that's the same color and black glasses. And, you know, I, I, I think there's probably some profit for, uh, for children to improve their observational skills or if you want to uh, keep them occupied for a period of time. But for people with dyslexia, kind of like me, it's, it's almost like Spanish water torture, you know, to try to find the guy somewhere. And by the way, he's up in the upper left-hand corner. I had to tell you that. Or for the rest of the sermon, <laughs> you would be looking for Waldo and uh, maybe not find him. But there's not really any significant benefit for us, except maybe a few minutes of leisure and diversion, for us to find Waldo in the myriad of pictures that he is uh, hidden in. But there is tremendous benefit for us to ask the question, where's Jesus in Mark chapter 16? Because I think that question helps us put together the bridge between skepticism and evangelism. Where is Jesus? So where is Jesus when we start out Mark chapter 16? And the answer is verse 6 from the angel... He is not here. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. So you, rem- you remember the story. The, the background is that the women, after the Sabbath is over, uh, Jesus dies on Friday. He's buried quickly. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus do the burial work. Some of the women see where he is laid. The Romans seal the tomb and put a guard, which Mark doesn't talk about, but Matthew does. And so they have to wait until the Sabbath is over. And after the Sabbath is over, very early on the first day of the week, they go to anoint the body. They have to remember that the Jewish burial system had two stages to it. The first stage was to take the body down, wrap it in a shroud, and put it in a stone tomb. They didn't bury the bodies underground. And that body would stay there for approximately a year to decompose, to desiccate. And that would eliminate the flesh. And then they would come back about a year later and collect the bones and put them in a bone box called an ossuary. And then if you were rich enough, you had enough room in your tomb for the whole family. So you would go in, take the box, put it back in the back, and leave the front area for the next family member who died. I don't know that I'd want that job going in that tomb for all the family members, but that's what they did, and you can still see some of those tombs uh, on the Mount of Olives today. So the women were going to anoint the body. They had no hope of resurrection. They had no thought that he would be alive. The anointing is simply to cover up the smell of decomposition. And when they got to the tomb, they wondered who's going to roll the stone away. They see the stone is already gone. They enter the tomb, and there's an angel. Actually, we find out from the Gospels there are two angels, but they only interact with the one. And he says, I know what you're looking for. I know who you're looking for. He's not here. So where is Jesus? He's not here. And this emphasizes the great truth of the resurrection, which we uh, celebrated last Sunday. 
he is not here. And let me add, just as he said. That's what Matthew says in his gospel. But go back to Mark 14 in verse 28. And you remember when Jesus was on the Mount of Olives with his disciples, he said, you're all going to fall away. And then he quoted from some scripture from Zechariah, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. This is uh, Mark 14, 28. And um, then Jesus said, but I will, after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. After I have risen. Now, if you go back in our study of Mark, you'll see that in chapter 8, right after Peter made that great confession of who Jesus is, Jesus said, I have to die, but I'll rise again. He said it twice in chapter 9. He said it again in chapter 10, repeatedly. And as you study each one of these reveals, it gets more in depth. I can almost see Jesus saying, didn't I tell you guys this last week? Okay, let me tell you again. Uh, I'm going to go... To Jerusalem and I'm going to be abused and I'm going to die and I'll rise three days later okay and the scripture even says they didn't know what he was talking about but they were afraid to ask so like in college class when the professor asks a question or, or, or says something and you have no idea what they're talking about but you don't want to ask a question because you'll sound stupid so you just nod your head and that's what the disciples were doing so it's a few days later, he says, now the whole resurrection deal, and they're giving him the starry-eyed blank look, and he says, okay, let me tell you again, and he gives more details. But after Jesus died and the tomb was empty, they still didn't understand. John chapter 2, after the resurrection, ah, then they understood, and it all began to make sense to them. But I want you to know The tomb is empty just as Jesus said. And it's not just the empty tomb, my friends. It's the absent body. In fact, if you ever run into someone who says, I don't believe in the resurrection, just ask them this question. What about the body? Where's the body of Christ? I mean, there's no answer to that. Because if the Romans could produce it, or if the Jews could have produced it, they would have. And people knew where he was buried. And the fact that the tomb is empty and the body is gone underlines this great truth of the wonderful resurrection of Jesus Christ. So the angel invites them to examine the emptiness of the tomb. The very thing that discouraged them. The tomb is empty and we don't know where they've taken him is the thing that ought to be the most encouraging thing for the church. Jesus is alive. In the original language, it's one word. He is risen. And in that one word, there is the announcement of the greatest miracle that has ever happened on planet Earth. And Jesus is alive. That's the implication of all of this. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will never die. He has conquered death. Isn't that great? If you read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, oh death, where is your sting? Where is your boasting, O grave? It's been destroyed by the Lord Jesus Christ. He's removed the sting. 
He's fulfilled the law. Thanks be unto God for this wonderful victory. We sang the Getty song in Christ alone, but they have an equally powerful song called The Power of the Cross. And one line goes like this. Oh, to see my name written in the wounds. For through your suffering I am free. Death is crushed to death. Life is mine to live. One through your selfless love. Oh, the power of the cross. Death is crushed to death. And that's what we're talking about by the fact that the tomb is empty. Now, the women fled from the tomb, Mark tells us, with trembling and with bewilderment. Very two interesting Greek words. The Greek word for tremor is tremos. That's where we get our English word tremor. So they were shaking, but the word for bewilderment is the word estasas, where we get the English word ecstasy. So it's not just fear, but it's amazement. In fact, Matthew adds the idea of joy. They fled from the tomb with fear and joy. Ecstasy. This amazing, thrilling truth was beginning to dawn upon them. And they had to go and tell others. And when they went to the disciples and told them, the disciples said, nonsense. And that's where the skepticism was found. There's also another implication. There is hope. And Peter says it in his epistle. We are brought again, we are brought to a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So because Jesus lives, I can face tomorrow. We had a funeral service here yesterday and they sang more hymns in that funeral service for Ron Boss than I've ever seen in any other service I've ever been part of. I think there were eight or nine hymns. And one of them was, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. There's hope for those who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. So where is he? He's not here. Secondly, where is he? Again, the angel said in verse 6 and 7, but go, tell your disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you into Galilee. So that's where he is going. He's going ahead of you into Galilee. Now, I remind you, this was promised as well. In that same text of Scripture we read a moment ago, chapter 14, Mark 14, verse 28. I'll strike the shepherd, sheep will be scattered. But after I have, I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. And the angel says, there you will see him just as he promised. So these locations are tied to a previous promise. And the whereabouts of Jesus is a fulfillment of his holy word. And so Jesus has a ministry in Galilee. Now we don't read about it in Mark. But we do read about it in the Gospel of John. We read about it in the Gospel of Luke. 
But in John chapter 21, you don't need to turn there, but I think you remember the story. Jesus goes to deal with Peter. Think about Peter. He's the background to the whole gospel of Mark, right? It's his sermons that Mark is recording. It's the interviews that Mark has with his spiritual father that he records. And Peter's quite an amazing guy. He's the guy who makes the confession, thou art the Christ. And then he's the guy who makes the boast, I will never fall even if everyone else does. And he's the guy who falls. I mean falls big time, right? He lies to a servant girl. And when he denies Jesus the third time, we're told in the Gospels, Jesus was there and he heard it and he locked eyes with Peter and then Peter just broke down and dissolved into tears. What did he do after that? Peter said, I'm going fishing. And the construction of the language in that sentence simply means this, I'm quitting the ministry and I'm going back to what I know how to do. Which is kind of ironic because you read in John chapter 1 that he went back fishing and caught nothing. But Jesus comes, and he's cooking a little breakfast on the shore. Remember that? And Peter comes, and they, they see him, and, and Jesus talks with Peter. He says, hey, Peter, do you love me? And uses a strong word, and, and Peter responds by saying, well, I'm fond of you. Peter was so broken, he couldn't even say, I love you. And they go through that three times until Jesus finally says, are you just fond of me? And Peter breaks down and weeps again. But Jesus restores him. He restores him. And the implication of this is that going back to Galilee is the place where Jesus restores his broken disciples. Remember, they all deserted him and fled. It wasn't just Peter. But Mark says, I want you to go tell his disciples and Peter. (laughs) I love that. The guy who's going to think it's all over. The guy who's going to quit. The guy who thinks he's never going to have any more promise in ministry. I want you to go tell the disciples and make sure you tell Peter. I'm going to see you in Galilee. What's going to happen there? I'm going to restore you. And then secondly, I'm going to send you out. I'm going to commission you. And that's exactly what he does. We read in Mark. He rebukes them first. That's what he did to Peter. He rebuked him, and then he restored him. To the disciples, after they've rejected everyone that said they saw Christ alive, Jesus rebukes them for their lack of faith and their stubborn refusal to believe everyone who saw him after he had risen. There's the rebuke first to correct. And then there is the wonderful statement, now I want you to go into all the world and preach the good news to all creation. God is not through with you even though you failed. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands because there's no need. How many of you have failed? How many of you have failed big time? Like Peter. Jesus says, I want to restore you. Let's meet in Galilee. And I want to recommission you. There's work for you to do. God is the God of the second chance. 
And I'm so thankful for that, or I would not be here today. Not the second chance only, but the third and the fourth and the 70th chance, right? Wow. My dear friend Doug Schmidt pastors at Woodside Bible Church, and I wish you had the video, but you can find it online on their website. There's a woman in their church who has a ministry in Detroit called AWOL. It stands for All Are Worthy of Love. And she drives down the streets of Detroit with this white van looking for street people. And she saw this woman and stopped and witnessed to her and and gave her some materials, just hygiene stuff and things like that, and witnessed to her. And this person didn't trust Christ, but she was later... This woman had been living on the streets of Detroit, abandoned at the age of 11, living on the streets of Detroit, experiencing drugs and everything else. And She was thrown into prison because of prostitution, but while she was in prison, she heard, remembered the gospel she had shared and came to Christ. Last Easter Sunday, they had this girl who came to Christ, was living on the streets, share her testimony. And people were dissolved to tears. And they said, hey, do you have a job? She said, yeah, I just got a job. Do you have a car? No, I don't. They said, how about if we give you a car? The church gave her a car. and gave it to her in front of thousands of people. And she broke down and wept. They said, we have a car dealer in in our church or a a salesman in our church. And and he's put this all together. And and it's a great deal. The church is paying for it. Here are the keys. You can pick it up Monday. So she goes to the dealership to pick up the car And here's this car salesman from their church, and he gives them the car. And all the people from the dealership, not Christians, come out and say, we want to help. And they bought her gas and gave her some other money. And and then she said to the salesman, hey, have you witnessed to all these people? And he said, well, no, I haven't. He says, I'm not even sure I'm a Christian. (laughs) She said, why aren't you a Christian? He said, I don't feel worthy. She grabbed him by the lapel and said, look at me. (laughs) Jesus has saved me. If he saved me, he can save you. And that guy got saved. And the story continues on and on and on. You don't feel worthy? Look at Peter. And God restores him and then sends him out. And what a blessing it is to send people out. That's what we're doing with Pastor Ben. You hate to see him go. But things can't stay the same forever. And God wants us to move and reach out and touch lives. And we have the privilege of sending them out. As painful as that may be, like sending your kids away. Maybe that's not a good illustration because sometimes you're glad to see them go. But you get the idea. It's also painful, right? When we were in Israel, um, the very first time on our agenda was to go to a place called the Primacy of Peter. I had no idea what that was. And I think I was actually doing the devotional for it. Don, you're doing the devotional, Primacy of Peter. I said, what in the world is that? So with, with me is a New Testament scholar, Dr. David Turner, from our seminary, who's written a huge commentary on the Gospel of Matthew. Again, one of the the greatest um, scholars 
in the New Testament that you'll find. I turned to David and said, David, what's the primacy of Peter? He says, I have no idea. And so when we get there, we find out it's connected with John 21. Now, we don't know where the location is, but this church is called the primacy of Peter. Never gone in it, but on the shore, we stand and read John 21 about Peter being restored. Somewhere along that northern shore of Galilee, Jesus met with Peter and restored him. I don't like the name the primacy of Peter, though. How about the primacy of God's grace? That's what it's all about. Hey, there's one third location in Matthew or in Mark 16, right? So he is not here, he is risen. I'm going ahead of you into Galilee. The one means he's alive, he's conquered death, there's hope. The second means we can be restored and forgiven and recommissioned. Here's the last one, and this is pretty amazing. The last one is simply this. Where is Jesus? Verse 19. He's in heaven at the right hand of God. By the way, he told them this too. If you go back in Mark's gospel, chapter 14, During the Jewish trial, Caiaphas said, Are you the Christ, the Son of the living God? And Jesus said, What? I am. Which, by the way, was a reference to that great name given to Moses. Jesus is the I am. But Jesus didn't stop there. He recalls two other Old Testament texts. And he says, And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming in the clouds of heaven. Sitting and coming. Two royal activities. Sitting at the right hand means authority and power. Coming in the clouds of heaven means it's time for judgment and the establishment of his kingdom on earth. So what happens after Jesus talks to his disciples? By the way, this is the first time in the Gospel of Mark that you have the title, The Lord Jesus, verse 19. After the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was taken up into heaven, and there he sat at the right hand of God, fulfilling the promise that he had given. Did you notice that each one of these locations fulfills a prior promise? Doesn't that strengthen your faith? Whatever he says, he will do. His word is true. By the way, if someone says repeatedly that they will die and three days later after being buried come out of the grave alive and they pull that off, I think they can do anything they want to do. Don't you? So when Jesus promises to never leave you or forsake you, trust him. The implications are these. He is Lord. He is Lord. He's risen from the dead and he is Lord. Someday every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Confess it now and your life will be filled with blessing. He is Lord. And secondly, he empowers his church to do whatever they need to do. The list of signs that goes prior to verse 19 sometimes throws people off. 
But actually, I think all that is is a summary of some of the things that did happen under the ministry of the apostles. They did cast out demons. They did speak in other languages. They, they did drink deadly poison. That is, later on, um, uh, in, in tradition, we have no place in the Scripture where it actually talks about that, but it doesn't mean that you initiate drinking deadly poison and see, to see if you're going to live. They did pick up snakes and live. You find that out in Acts chapter 28, right? Apostle Paul. But it's not that you initiate picking up snakes. There's a whole group in the Appalachian Mountains who, who think that this is part of their religion, the snake handlers. And I find it ironic that the founder of that little sect died of snake bites. Now, if something like that happens, God has the power to save you. But the whole point is, God empowers his church to do what he wants them to do. Why? Because he's on the throne and all power is given to him. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 22. Jesus has gone into heaven. This is Peter talking. Jesus has gone into heaven and he's at the right hand of God and angels and authorities and all powers are subject to to him. There isn't a government in this world that is not subject to Jesus Christ. Now he's allowing them to do what they want to do to a certain extent. But someday every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Christ is Lord. The Christian life is the life that is lived in the presence and power of the one who is crucified rose again, restored his disciples in Galilee, and now is at the right hand of the Father. And because that is true, we need to go and spread the word. So from skepticism to optimism, from unbelief to evangelism, the disciples go everywhere, and the phenomenon is this, those who were small and frightened turned the world upside down. And that would not have happened if they knew Jesus wasn't alive. And so therefore, my friend, we have the opportunity to go into this world and preach the good news to every creature we come in contact with until they have the opportunity to understand and believe and have their life transformed but you won't be an evangelist until you have seen he's not there. He is alive. And he's seated right now at the right hand of Almighty God. Let's pray. Lord, encourage our faith this morning by the simple knowledge that you indeed reign supreme. That the tomb is empty because you conquered death that you fulfilled your word and restored your disciples and they became flaming evangelists. And that when your work was accomplished, and your 40 days of ministry, post-resurrection ministry were completed, you took your seat on the throne above. And we read in the book of Romans chapter 8, who will condemn us? Not Christ. For he is the one who was crucified. 
who has also been seated at the right hand of the Father and who intercedes for us. Therefore, we are confident that every promise you've ever made will be fulfilled. And the good news of Jesus Christ is the only hope for this desperate, dying world. And may we be ambassadors to call every person to be reconciled to God through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. And all God's people said, amen, amen. You're dismissed.